Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. This episode is the second part of a two-part series with Aaron Rabinowitz from the Embrace the Void podcast. I did my full introduction to it in the first part, so if you want the context and the introduction to the guest, please do feel free to check that out. If you don't care too much for context or just don't trust this show to deliver it to you, and as I always say, we wouldn't blame you for that, then feel free to just jump in here. And I think this actually does work out quite nicely because... Um, at the point we start the conversation here, I give a quick recap of what we covered in the first part of the series. One quick clarifier I do just want to make before jumping in is some of the comments I got possibly from the Embrace the Void podcast listeners who haven't checked out this show as much was that a lot of people thought in the first part that I was arguing um, essentially for a sort of libertarian conception of free will. As I probably should have made more clear, I was just giving a devil's advocate to allow Aaron to break down his argument against the most common objections and fully flesh out um, his infinite regress approach to moral luck. So if none of that past sentence just made sense, then no, don't worry about that. Feel free to go back and check out the first part of this episode. Essentially, the bottom line is that we both agree that libertarian free will doesn't exist, but we can still talk meaningfully about morality, although we do disagree, and this is actually what we get into in this episode, we do disagree on exactly what the foundations of a moral worldview are. So, you know, I wasn't saying I personally believe that there is this absolute egoic libertarian free will. I was just trying to give some arguments that people tend to give in its favour. So just a quick clarifier there. For this episode, we take up the second half of that question. What are the foundations of morality if this really strong sense of free will and agency isn't one of them. And this is, I've called this episode Into the Void because it's deep and dark and complex and hopefully interesting to you. And my approach here can sound a little bit nihilistic, a little bit pessimistic of ever having any real knowledge of what is moral at all. That's again, just to clarify in advance, that's not exactly where I'm coming from. I'm just trying to really push back on any positive claim to knowledge, not because I don't believe that there is anything that we can know in this space. I do think there's things we can know, but I'm just trying to push back to really get to what are the foundations, what are the most fundamental premises or starting points which we can be most sure about, can we build our moral worldviews upon. Let's get straight to it. As always, if you want to support the podcast, there's a couple of ways you can do so. Sharing episodes on social media or forwarding them to friends really helps. All of the growth we've seen from this podcast has come entirely organically through people doing stuff like that. And two, if you're able to, you can sponsor us on a more monetary basis. We have um, a few dozen wonderful uh, Patreons who sponsor the show for small amounts like $2 an episode is what I've been suggesting, is what most people do, but you can sponsor at whatever level. 
and that just helps us cover all our costs. We have no outside funding, and we don't run advertisements on the show. So if you want to sponsor us um, monetarily for any amount, even if it's just like a buck or two, please do check out patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast. And as always, a genuine big thank you to everyone who's already doing that. You're making the show possible. So, that's about it by way of introductions. It's my pleasure to present for the second time, Erin from Embrace the Void. So to summarise where we're at, which went on maybe yeah. a little too long, um, we both agree there's nothing inflating this point. There's no hard libertarian free will. There's no hard sense of agency. We both agree that there still are ways we can talk about morality objectively, although we bickered for a bit on exactly <laughs> what objective means. It's, um, I'm contractually obligated to bicker about that terminology. <laughs> right. um, and it it sounds like... I mean, I'm increasingly sort of realising there's just not as much of a gap here as people think, at least in their sort of more nuanced forms. It sounds like, like you're taking a sort of combined virtue, ethics, consequentialist view, and I'm more more intuitively appeal to just a meathead consequentialist view. Yeah. And I mean, like I also value deontological constraints. Like I think, you know, my, my view is very pluralist when it comes to the ethical truths. I believe that almost all of the ethical systems that have persisted, not all of them, but a lot of them have an ethical intuition behind them that could be framed in the form of a kind of foundational ethical truth and that those truths are in conflict. And what we get with our lives is a plurality of hard choices where we decide trade-offs between these various competing moral truths. Um, and I think, you know, the importance is, can we, can we distinguish between a range of acceptable options for those decisions and then say outside of that range, what are the things that are really just unacceptable? So that's interesting then, because um, earlier in the conversation on the more meta-ethical side, it sounded like you were being slightly more hardline than me about moral objectivity. But now that we get to this, I just, you know, whatever maximizes consequences, right? And it sounds like you'd be more open to a sort of more foundational pluralism. Mm -hmm. Why? Yeah. Well, because I think there are in irreducible competing ethical truths, and you can't you can't cash out the other moral truths purely in terms of consequences without losing something valuable. I think that that yeah. I mean, I'm a pluralist about the nature of the good. I think um, you know, there's like you know, you, you there's there's it's not just pleasure and pain, right? There's very different forms of pleasure, and they're not going to be reducible down to a single thing, but what makes them good is that they're good and it all does sort of just map down to maximizing desirable experiences 
you don't think you don't think intentions matter though in certain certain like like not just what what consequences you bring about but why you brought them about oh no fuck no um (laughs) yeah i think that that's i think that's implausible i think the virtue theorists rightly argues that it's not just that you do the right thing but that you do it for the right reasons and in the way that the ethical person would do it because um um so so as john stuart mill says right um it matters not only what men do but the manner of men they are that do it right but he's a pure utilitarian in saying that he's saying that because your inner life will be richer and more full if you have thought about your moral reasoning and if you do it not by you know learned habit but you do it because you are that sort of person that Mm -hmm. will be more valuable because that set of conscious experiences is more valuable but it's just the conscious experiences it's not Sorry, go, yeah, go ahead. No, I mean th- these are these are all. I mean, like, we could do a whole episode on every one of these problems, obviously. But like, there are a couple of ways in which you can understand the consequentialist claim. You know, if they're just claiming whatever number of goods you think there are, what you ought to do is bring about the situation that produces the the most of those goods. I don't think that's true because I think there are situations in which we can tell what the best outcome would be, but you're not morally obligated to bring it about. Could you give me a scenario? Sure. Um, Let's see. I think the the basic trolley car example is a good one. If you're on the track, that's the one person versus the track of the five people. It would be a better outcome if you killed yourself and saved the other five. But I don't think it's a moral obligation to kill yourself to save the other five. It would be what I would call supererogatory. Right, but that's where that weird deontic, like, obligatory and permissible stuff that com- comes in. Um, I don't... But that's, that's ethics. I mean, that's the difference between ethics and pure axiology, in a sense, right? We can talk about what the better outcomes are, but we also have to talk about what acceptable means that we can use to get to them, and it matters what means you use, and not just because of some means producing better or worse consequences. Well, the only reason that you would... The only reason I can see, and so maybe you can give me a better reason that I just you know haven't studied enough philosophy sure. or whatever, but the only reason that I can see that you'd follow a rule in a case where it's non-goodness maximising mm-hmm. would be that the overall observance of said rule you have reason to believe is goodness maximizing so you don't hang the innocent man to prevent a riot that kills 10 people because overall rule of law is a goodness maximizing rule or so we have we think we have reason to believe um it seems like you're committed to something a bit thicker than just like even a very strong rule consequentialism in saying there are there are some um rules that we just don't violate period well so yeah so i mean if we're really saying so so here's how i would put it right um i think that there is essentially a non-instrumental value to respecting autonomy for example ironically given that i don't believe in free will i still think that we ought to treat human beings as if they are ends in themselves that can adopt ends as their own Um, and i think that it's moral to do so even if it doesn't produce 
any better consequences. So if you have two options, right, one where you respect autonomy and everyone's well off and one where you don't respect autonomy and everyone is much happier off, right? You put them all in the matrix and experience machines and you feed them pure pleasure and they get like, let's, let's pretend that they have a, uh, the experience of a robust life of flourishing even, right? They have a deep, rich, meaningful sense to their lives being good, but ultimately it's just all you manipulating them. I would argue that that's a worse outcome than the first outcome, even though you've increased utility a great deal, increased flourishing a great deal, there is the value to autonomy that is being sacrificed there that can't be compensated for. Um, I'll bite the bullet and say, counter my intuitions, I don't have a strong reason for opposing the latter outcome. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think this comes down to sort but, but, but of psychological have, moral foundations, but, right? But what, How, have, what have you got for the first but for your intuition? Well, so I, I do believe that in some of these situations, what we have are intuitions. And like, to some extent, some people will not feel an intuitive pull now, and I'm, I'm talking in terms of access, not necessarily in terms of what the actual truth is. Our access to the truth may rest in part on a, a fight between our interests. But that being said, um, we could, you know, when, when you have a competition between two ideas which have some intuitive plausibility, I do think that we can divide, we can decide which one. Here, I'm sorry, let me start, let me start over. Um, in these really hard problems, like I've said, there is these two competing, I think, intuitions or truths that are not easily reducible one way or the other, whether it's, you know, the the moral luck, the ultimate truth, the ultimate self versus the conventional self. And, and partly what we have to do at the end of the day is just try to understand what rises and falls with adopting this perspective versus adopting the other perspective, right? So if we if we adopt the view that autonomy really doesn't matter in the way that it seems like you would have to if you're going to say world A is a better outcome than world B, what is that going to mean for other situations in which we are put in a choice, we're making a trade-off between autonomy and the other factors? Is autonomy never going to outweigh other things? So should we... You know, I mean, maybe you're sympathetic to this, but right, like, should we vaccinate people against their will? Should we treat them medically against their will? Um, what's the downside in doing those kinds of things? Yes, in, in, you know, if the consequence, yeah, you know, yeah, vaccinating people against their will might be permissible in some circumstances. Um, it depends, and like, there is a value to autonomy as a felt experience, right? Like I just quoted Mill as, mm -hmm. but then, how's your argument there any different to this sort of like slightly backwards move people make from like? Um, we, we, we must have morality, therefore we must have agency. You're saying, well, we must have a case where the matrix is worse somehow, therefore we must have autonomy. It, it just seems... That wasn't no. what I was trying to get at. Okay. Me, so I, if I, I, understand, I understand how it could sound that way, right? I'm not trying to argue back from 
we have this on the ground problem. And so we have to adopt a certain view to give us a reason for answering the thing one way or the other. I think there are situations where we should abandon our intuitions where we might think, yeah, the matrix thing would be wrong, but maybe it's not right. I'm just trying to sort of build a case where it seems to me that there are a variety of circumstances and maybe you don't share this intuition and we can argue. And and like what we, what, what then happens is we argue about multiple examples and we see if I can evoke that kind of intuition in you. And if I can't, then there, there may be a foundational disagreement with us about the moral truth. And one of us may be right or wrong, but we may not be able to prove it one way or the other. Okay. But Mm -hmm. this is what's wrong with the, with the (laughs) methodology that non-consequentialists employ when talking about uh, metaethics is it's like, it's like this sort of reflective equilibrium of all of our different intuitions, right? And no, my intuition very strongly is that there's something off about the Matrix, but I also am critically thinking about it and realise that my intuition bears very little epistemological weight. My intuition 200 years ago would have told me that slavery is fine, today is still probably misleading me, and can be influenced by the smell of cookies or lemons. Like, our intuitions just aren't epistemologically reliable. And and, and so then the <laughs> deontologist or the virtue ethicist says, yes, but our, you know, our intuitions are all we really have and all we can do is balance them out against each other. No, we have facts. We have science and we have conscious experience, which is a fact. And then right. the deontologist rolls their eyes and goes, oh, this is just what's wrong with consequentialists. But I don't know. Well, so here's what I'll say. Um, this is this is the common argument that's raised against moral intuitionists, and it's why a lot of ethicists are very skeptical of appeals to quote unquote intuitions. Uh, I do think they are unavoidable, and I don't think they're as bad as you necessarily or, you know, you're making a, you're making a very clever, very good case. I'm not like I appreciate that you are pushing this issue, but I do think that. We can we can say that our intuitions are better than you are describing. There are ones that can go astray, and sometimes they can be re- – but, like, we can compare this to our perception of the world through our senses. I think that we can say fairly well that our senses are reliably tracking something out there in the world that is something roughly like – what we are experiencing, even though you are very well aware, I'm sure there are lots of experiments where I can mess with your perception in a variety of kinds of ways. I can short circuit it as it were. So I do think we can short circuit our ethical intuitions, but I think through a mix of those intuitions and reasoning, we can uncover a a more coherent framework, a more robust framework, one that assesses, that addresses more of our intuitions. And that's, you know, that's sort of the best that we can do in this kind of field. And I agree that that's, you know, I I would much rather prefer that I could build a machine that measures the intrinsic value of virtue or something and point to a number and say, see, it's worth exactly this much. Um, But I don't think it actually works that way. Um, But I also don't think that 
if we mean by everything boils down to consequences, that all that matters is at the end of the day, what comes out of the machine in terms of how many people have how many units of happiness or units of flourishing or whatever it is, that, that I still think that's going to give you an incomplete picture of how to do ethics properly. So if that's the point being made, I just think that it's not going to go very well in terms of unpacking a system that better gets to what I think is the moral truth. No, and I mean, so the the calculating in the machine is, I think, a hole consequentialists have dug themselves in ever since Bentham's, what the fuck is it called, the Felicit Calculus or whatever, and I'm, right? I'm, I mean, even in the abstract kind of calculation, I'm not saying we literally need to do utility calculus. Yeah, which we can't, right? And we obviously right. can't. And this just goes back to my case of, like, what do we have good reason to believe in? But so would you say that, like... Your reliance on your sense datum, like, you know, you are seeing and hearing a certain thing, even though you know that that can be misled, that is epistemologically equivalent to your reliance on a moral intuition? Um, on some level, I think so, yeah. I mean, I think, like... um. There's no substitution for uh, Nagel would say, right? There's no substitution for genuinely caring about the well-being of others. I would put it in terms of like, if you're the kind of individual who turns a corner and sees, you know, a small child about to light a cat on fire, if you do not perceive, in a sense, the wrongness of that action, there's no purely rational, logical way that I can get you to understand the badness of that action. I can do a little bit of work on, like, you understand how you don't want to be lit on fire and the cat is re- relevantly like you in the ways that matter. So clearly it doesn't want to be lit on fire. And that's um, an argument that some people will find appealing. But, you know, e- radical egoists will say, well, or nihilists will say, well, I, I don't have any reason to care about the well-being of anyone else, even if they are like me. I don't care about being consistent. I don't care about any of these things. And I don't think there's an answer to the that problem. But there's again, no, we're yeah. reasoning backwards from desirability there. Maybe there's not a – maybe there is a, a, an, an abstract truth of what is the most good for the most number, right? Whatever that turns out to mean. Um and then maybe the answers that we should give about why we should act in accordance with that are actually profoundly incomplete. So I don't think they're incomplete. I think they're just very complicated. And I think that our evolved systems for getting at them are in, you know, are incomplete in a sense, or, or at least are a mixed bag. And that much like we've seen that there was a long period of stagnation with human social progress and human intellectual progress, there can be long periods of stagnation with human ethical progress. But I still think there's no way to, to deny the concept of ethical progress, for example. I think we get better. So there's two questions, right? Like, what is the overall, and this surely must be objectively knowable, what is not objectively knowable, um, there, 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 there 
are objective answers in this space, or at least falsifiable mm-hmm. ones. What is what is the most good for the most number? Again, whatever good turns out to mean, right? That's question one. Question, and you know, we can make progress on that question, and I think we have. The other question just is, why should I give a shit? And it, it, there's this intuition we all have that the second question must or not even why should I give a shit, how should I act as to maximise my own good, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's there's an intuition that those two questions must align somehow. Now, what I don't think is true is that it's my in my own good to act profoundly in ways that we would consider very immoral. Like, I think we, we are in community with others, we are communal beings, we are defined by our trading of language with each other, by our pledging and affirming to each other, and by having a persona that others interpret and that we want to live up to and have reason to live up to as part of being in society, right? I think all mm-hmm. of that's true. But that still doesn't actually... You know, we're not, like I say, we're not just all behind our own eyes. We're not separated atoms. We're not parts of a Newtonian machine. But even that more communal vision wouldn't necessarily always cash out to me acting in accordance with the ultimate good. And here would be my final challenge is maybe it just doesn't. Yeah, I mean, I think if the concern is can can ethics misfire and on a societal level or a personal level, the answer seems to be absolutely yes. And I, there's another related fear here, I think, that we should mention. One of the major problems in ethics is what happens if ethics and self-interest do come apart, right? If you have individuals – some will try to argue that yeah, like – Yeah, that's what I'm driving at, so I go ahead. Okay, no, great. So, yeah, this is a really big fear for a lot of ethicists, that if, if you a person is made to choose between ethics and self-interest, that they will inevitably choose self-interest. And so some ethicists will try to argue that everything in ethics can be reduced down to self-interest to avoid that problem. Um, other ethicists like me will bite the bullet and say, not everything reduces down to self-interest. So if psychologically the egoist is right, then some people are just never going to be motivated to act ethically and there may not be a functional solution to that problem. Um, But that doesn't mean that ethics isn't true. It just means that there are people for whom it won't be motivationally effective. That's unfortunate, but that that that's that's the reality that I experience. Right, but and and also this is this is will be changed by the world, right? That that to my mind they are just two different questions of what is the global good and what is the individual good, and in mm-hmm. some societies the answer will cohere very nicely, or at least in some theoretical society it might. You know, you could, uh, an omnipotent being could design a society in which those two did cohere, but in in other societies they would radically diverge, and my guess would be in our current society they somewhat diverge and somewhat cohere. I, mm-hmm. think, I think they probably cohere more than the individualist would have it, but probably mm-hmm. less than the deontologist would have it, or the virtue ethicist would have it. It's a bit of a mess. Yeah. 
I, I would say really that one of the key metrics for the quality of a society is how much it successfully aligns individual interest with group interest because one of the major purposes of society is to get us out of the problem of you know things like the tragedy of the commons and various other prisoner's dilemma game theory uh, situations uh, uh, where individuals acting out of their own rational self-interest will produce be- worse results for all of them. So I, I certainly agree that the purpose, I mean, this goes back to Aristotle as well, right? That like politics is just a part of ethics or ethics is just the same as politics. And the purpose of politics is to make people ethical by creating a system that puts their interests, their desires in line with what the good is, that that's, that's the virtuous person that you want. Right. And that's, of course, the promise of free market economics is you can have a perfect um, coincidence of individual rational self-interest and societal good, which probably isn't true. But anyway, I just like there's no but there's no reason to assume a priori that you will be able to give reasons to people that it is in their individual good to act in the global good. That, 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 doesn't, that doesn't follow from the way the universe is set up. It seems to me that there are situations where the global good and the individual good genuinely come apart. Right. In no way, and there's no, there's no solution to that. I agree. And in that case, do you say that there's some extra binding constraint on that individual that they ought, in some deep sense, to follow the global good? Or do you just say they come apart and throw up your hands? It, I think it's more nuanced than just you always have to follow the global good or you always have to follow the personal good. I think a human life is a one where a, a good human life is one where sometimes you follow the global good and sometimes you follow the personal good. Right. Right. And and this is another way that some folks have pushed back on the maximizing part of the consequentialist view, which is it's OK to lead a life where you don't maximize good because you chose to focus on your own good and enrich yourself in ways that weren't the most efficient way to act ethically. This is the um, the uh, the disgust argument against utilitarianism, which is it seems to alienate you from your projects of worth by saying you have to not spend hours a day learning a musical instrument so that you can be out being the most effective utilitarian that you can be. Yeah, and like... I'm going to hold myself back on that one because that would just open us up. Of course, to there's another. an answer. For everything I say, there is a response, right? right. There's a book worth of response. Yeah. <laughs> I guess, I guess, where I'm coming from on this is like just a sense of like, what can we really know? And I just do have a profound skepticism that a lot of the intuitions people. Um, evoke, be it like, like you said. I mean, this goes for the one you just raised, like the the disgust argument, or the you know the, the autonomy argument, or the argument that we must have agency. They're they're all just like desirability intuitions, and I just don't know what, if any, epistemological weight we should put on them. Yeah, and I think that's a, a serious problem. And I I did my master's thesis defending moral realism against. Um, uh, Street's version of the evolutionary problem of of this, this is the evolutionary argument, which is essentially 
you know, it goes a little bit back to your parsimony argument earlier, which is I can give an account of the evolution of moral beliefs that doesn't in any way ever require there being anything out there in the world that they are tracking for them to still be adaptive, for them to still arise. So all of our intuitions could just have arisen because they were adaptive, and that might raise serious skepticism for our ability to access the moral truth if that's if that's the way it is but i mean the the, the arose adaptively seems obviously true but that 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 wouldn't be our reason for following them right and right th- those are just separate truths right so if you say right. what you know why are we compelled to be moral you can say well listen i'll give you two answers and you can decide which one you want. One, you, there's evolution and socialization in human history and culture have just sort of conditioned you to be that way. I do think that is a true account. But then you can also say, I can appeal to you that I think a lot of the time your best life and your best good will be served. Look, look at what I've just done over the past fucking hour and 20 minutes, right? Is, right. To my mind, immensely, I wouldn't necessarily say pleasurable is the right word, but immensely fulfilling and I'm enriched by it. My hobby is I call up philosophers and I'm a dick to them about metaethics. It's great, <laughs> right? Yeah. No, I and, totally understand. I mean, I think here's what I'll say about intuitions, right? I'll um, my, my final feeling on intuitions is we can test them some. It's not going to be, but we can we test them in a sense the same way that we test scientific claims, right? So you have a theory and you look at all the data and if it fits all of the data, then you consider that your current theory until data comes along that doesn't fit the theory. And then you have to either revise the theory or figure out why the data was wrong or figure out how it fits into the theory. And you're engaged in that sort of circular dialectic between observation and your theories. And to me, intuition should be treated much like moral theories. I have a theory that says one ought not all things being equal to, uh, you know, cause suffering instead of flourishing. Okay. If you can present me an example where that is not the case, where you know we ought we ought to do that sort of thing, then I will consider revising my intuitions. But but what's the what's the analog of the data in that analogy? So I think the data there would be uh, you know thing experiences, circumstances, um, other competing intuitions. And again, I don't think that that's that's not as satisfying as being able to build a machine, but I don't think it's the same as saying it's arbitrary in the sense that I think you can look at two sets of beliefs where beliefs here includes intuitions and say this set is better in a variety of ways than the other set. It's more coherent. It's produces more consistent, um, um, conclusions about a variety of cases it addresses a variety of hard cases effectively you know i think that's what what you're doing in ethics that's and and like some people are not going to find that satisfying and i I don't have an answer for them beyond that I, i wish i did i wish there were a machine but like if that's the data that people think makes something real i guess the final thing i'll say is you don't have that kind of data for the majority of psychological claims either, but I think we're still keen to believe that they are real claims about the world. 
I mean, yeah, I mean, so this this just comes down to, like, what what I'm interpreting you're saying is a sort of, like, Rawlsian reflective equilibrium methodology of some form. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we have the problem of criteria. Everyone faces that kind of problem of, you know, your, your intuitions about what's a good apple versus a bad apple, and then you look at the apples and you can, you can, you know, you can generate a lot of serious epistemic problems and a lot of serious skepticism. And I'm very sympathetic to skepticism. So while I am bullish on moral realism, I'm also very, you know, I, I, I don't want to say I'm, I'm very humble, but I like epistemically, I, I, I believe very strongly that people should be humble, that they should be very skeptical of their own intuitions, even if those are the, the best they're going to do in a lot of cases. I just like, I'm not, I'm just like, these are like, I, I am just pushing back as strongly as I can on certain things. I want, I want to find the plausibility behind something that I'm not seeing. Does that make sense? Sure. And I, I don't see the plausibility to reflective equilibrium because it seems like you're just circling the drain. It seems like, to my mind, and maybe you're going to say, well, this is just an intuition you have that isn't epistemologically reliable. But to my <laughs> mind, there's got to be some sort of ranking of intuitions in order to get the thing off the ground. You've got to be able to say some intuition is more fundamental or more prior than another. That okay. conscious experience exists is a pretty good start, but you wouldn't even have to go that deep. You could do something like the undesirability of pain or something like exactly. that. Exactly. That was where I was, where I was totally going to go, as I was going to say, one more way that you can do this is to say, I, I, I am more of a foundationalist than a coherentist in the sense that I think there are certain foundational claims like causing unnecessary suffering is wrong, where... There's no further explanation to be given for why it's wrong beyond the nature of suffering. If you can't convey to someone what it's like to feel pain and they don't understand why it's bad to cause pain, there's nothing else to convey to them that's going to fill in the gap for them. But that doesn't mean that it's not true in virtue of the nature of that real thing that is pain. Right. It's like, you know, at some point you've just got to say, well, then go put your hand on a hot stove. Like, if that's right. what you think, you know? Right. Um, which I think, yes, yes. Okay. Should we? Yeah, no, I think we, we've reached a good point. And I mean, like, there's a lot of more work to be done, obviously. And I'm not, I don't, I don't ever want to give the impression that any of this stuff is easy. But I do think that you can find points like that. Or like, you know... There are intuitions that I think are just unassailable, right? Any theory that comes to the conclusion that hurling Jewish babies into the ovens was the right thing to do, I think that's a reductio ad absurdum. And, you know, part of what we've been going on here about is, like, is anything really a reductio ad absurdum? But I do think some things are, right? I think – so, yeah, go ahead. Um, maybe, right? Um, but th th <laughs> Sorry, I keep opening more cans of worms as you're trying to finish up. <laughs> well, let me just defend the Jewish baby roasting for a minute. Um, Let's talk about the Jewish question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I mean... I, I mean, the, the thing is, though, like, if, if what you've got that roasting Jewish babies is wrong is your intuition, well, the people who did it probably had a pretty strong intuition that it was okay. That's the Actually, only thing. A lot of them didn't. 
which is a fascinating fact, right? And you could say, of course, that's just their moral psychology, right? It's not a moral fact that they shouldn't have, and that's what they were perceiving, and you can push back, obviously. But, like, a lot of the SS officers in the camps had to get blind drunk to do what they were doing. Like, the camps were an improvement on murdering the babies with guns because the morale was collapsing as a result of this behavior. So, like, humans are hardwired to be ethical. Now, that doesn't mean that there are ethical truths, but it is a thing working in our favor a little bit in terms of practicality. Yeah, and I... So that's a whole other hour conversation, is I do find it really interesting that they do... Um, I yep. do... Yeah, I mean, that is... That's, like, a whole other conversation, but I do find it really interesting that, like, there does seem to be this weird duality in human nature that we do have that kill switch, but, like, we do seem to be deeply repulsed by it as well. And it's sort of interesting, is, like, is that evolutionary? What would be the adaptive value of, like, this profound moral remorse? Um, but then also, what would it prove if it were evolutionary? Would that be a strong reason for it, you know? I, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know that. Yeah, and I I never ever want to base my moral realism on any claim like because this evolved, it's therefore good. No, there's clearly lots of cases where that's false, and like just because something existed and make it good in that kind of sense. I'm yeah. sure I could. Um, so Chesterton, you know, the the Catholic thinker, um, mm-hmm. has the the wonderful quote where he's like, he his argument for original sin is like, if it be true as it surely is that a man can feel exquisite pleasure in skinning a live cat, then one must deduce from that fact the presence of original sin. And... (laughs) I mean, I would put it in the Aristotelian sense, right? We are... Um, we have the capacity to be both virtue and virtuous and vicious by nature, and we are made virtuous and vicious by habit, or right. moral luck, as it were, right? So you can certainly have the bad luck of being the kind of person who would like to skin a cat. And, and we, we, will, we will mourn you in, in that fact. Like, I think that we should have great pity for the immoral individual. That's who, another thing that comes out enjoys, of the moral luck stuff. Yeah. Who enjoys skinning a cat. I, I merely, I, I merely invoke the cat skinner because his existence does provide um, something of a counterpoint to the idea of placing much weight in intuition. Well, I mean, it. I think it would say it, it puts against placing all of your weight in your own personal intuitions. Right. But I think through discussing your intuitions with others and reasoning and stuff, you can improve upon your intuitions. Um, but yeah, you're right. You know, you can, you can end up with a really bad set of intuitions and, and like, just like you can end up with a really bad set of beliefs and end up, you know, a flat earther who thinks that like every conspiracy is true because you've adopted the stance of, you know, be doubtful of any widespread belief. I fucking love flat earthers because, you know, as soon as there's in the social sciences, they want to reduce everything to rational behavior. And you can Mm -hmm. just go look at this. Look at this. Yeah. It's not, people are not all that rational and like economists and socialists and even philosophers actually who get frustrated, you know, that the people aren't perfectly consistent and rational. And I, I always figure they must have trouble doing their shopping because people are not consistent and rational. And just look at the flat earthers. There's no good reason for that. That's just some bullshit. And it's, it's beautiful. And this is, I mean, this is why I'm, I always bang the drum about luck is the difference between you and the flat earther is luck. 
Oh yeah. It's not, it's not that you're more, and like, this is something that, that especially liberals who, who believe in the information deficit model and believe in rational entities, like they think that, you know, there, there is something about them that protects them from slipping into that. But I don't think there is, I think it's very easy, even when you are educated in a sense, trained in a sense to still be highly susceptible to bias. So, I mean, like a lot of what you've been pushing back on here is the, is the you're giving me the postmodernist reaction to things like moral realism, which I, I totally buy. Like I totally buy the idea that we need to be incredibly skeptical of our intuitions and we need to, you know, torture them so that we can make sure that they are telling us the truth and that a lot of them probably aren't. And that a lot of, that some of them may need to be done away with because they evolved at a bad time or from, you know, some bad beliefs. Yeah. And so. yeah. And that's, that's the contradiction of like why I say I think of myself as very intellectually humble, even though I don't necessarily project that way is just, like, attack it with fire. Any claim to knowledge, like, yeah. attack it with fire and see what's left standing. Yeah, be willing to kill your babies. Wonderful <laughs> metaphor to end on. Um, That's how we use it in the, the arts metaphor for it. <laughs> but then your intuitions shift. Like, my intuitions on, like, we won't go into the applied, but, like, I've recently convinced myself of pretty much something like prison abolition, which would have completely violated my intuitions a few years ago. And now, the more, I just I just find it obvious. Mm-hmm. But again, that's, like, theory. This goes back to what I was saying, comparing intuitions to theories, right? Theories change. They should. Any system where your intuitions didn't change would be a much worse system, I think, right? If you had the same intuitions now that you had when you were 15, that would just mean you hadn't grown as a person. Um, but I think there's a there's a hope, and maybe it's just a hope, but I think there's an argument behind it that there's a difference between intuitions growing towards the truth and intuitions growing away from the truth, and I think we can we can distinguish between those. Not always, not always within our own lives, but I think there are clear cut cases where people go astray, essentially. Yeah, through no fault of their own. Right, through no fault of their own, and we should pity them and help them get back on the right path. Okay, cool. Let let, let let's wrap up because like as soon as okay. I say something else, we're gonna descend. <laughs> back into this is this. why people don't have philosophers on you think you think that you're messing with me but really you're trapped in here with me yeah didn't i i'm, I'm just the pig in this scenario you're yeah you're the mud i mean you're the you're the person wrestling with the mug with the oh god i fucked that up <laughs> take that over. right uh right i'm the pig in this scenario you're the person wrestling in the mud with the pig right and <laughs> what you've realized is i can do this for hours and have a great time <laughs> Yeah, no, it's why I do this. Um, seriously, isn't this stuff so, like... I think this is sort of my answer to the sort of, like, why should we be good? Is one, like, I, it doesn't feel very good to be profoundly immoral, but, like, this journey towards the truth... Not even towards the truth is maybe overstrong, but you know what I'm talking about. This journey is, is profoundly... I think pleasurable's the wrong word, but important, meaningful, fun... Flourishing. Yeah. Yeah. And like that that's sort of my answer. It's just like why is it good to be good? It's it's a very interesting process of discovery. Yeah. It's I mean I will admit I do most of the things that I do because I find them pleasurable. 
Yeah. I don't I didn't choose to find arguing about meta ethics for hours at a time pleasurable. I just do. And I that's why I do it. Right. Like <laughs> it's not it's not you know, there's no I mean I, I it's it'd be great if it helps people. It'd be great if people gain something from this, but I really do feel compelled to do the things that I'm doing in a in a robust kind of sense. And I spend most of my time observing this the factors that are compelling me to do it. Um, but I don't like, I don't feel a strong need to take credit for any of them. Yeah. And when, when I see people who are behaving immorally, even if they're powerful or wealthy or successful, I, to some sense, there's something in Plato's unhappy tyrant, right? When you look at someone like Donald Trump, who appears to not only talk in lump and witless insults, but to think in them too. I wouldn't want to be him phenomenologically, you know? I see, I sure. see, a, I see a lot of people who seem to be reliably making themselves unhappy. That's a whole sure. other conversation. Though I will, I, I don't think I have to go all the way to saying that, like, coherent Caligula is secretly not actually as happy as he claims to be, that he would really be happier if he were ethically flourishing or something like that it may be the case that like flourishing feels really good for you and me but it doesn't feel really good for everyone oh yeah and and my moral worldview can easily admit a happy caligula but i can't help noticing it tends not to be the the reality sure yeah pragmatically speaking it seems like i mean you can talk about the paradox of hedonism or the paradox of egoism all these kinds of situations where individuals who don't act with a robust ethical framework seem to lead worse lives but it isn't necessarily the case but sure yeah if you're hedging your bets act ethically yeah and that's a contingent coincidence it doesn't prove anything but it is it is noteworthy that um yeah anyway 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 tell um Tell listeners um, about uh, where they can go to follow you and what you do on uh, uh, your podcast. Yeah, I mean, if after this hour and a half you still want to hear any more of me, <laughs> um, you can go and listen either to Embrace the Void, or you should listen to both, right? You should listen to Embrace the Void, which is my podcast with GW, where we talk philosophy and politics and um, ways to cope with all of the horrors of the worst of all possible timelines. And then on a slightly lighter note, um, myself and Thomas Smith uh, from Serious Inquiries and Opening Arguments and some other shows, we do a show called Philosophers in Space, where we take a piece of science fiction and we combine it with an interesting philosophical topic. um, And we use the, the science fiction to hook people into talking about the philosophy. So um, it tends to be a real fun show um yeah and those are on all the major you know pod apps and whatnot so you can just search away cool 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 listen man thank you so much for doing this that 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 was a lot of fun nope thank you for listening to the political philosophy podcast i'll have some more updates about what's coming up next on the show I think, and I'm going to have to try and do this in real time, I'm going to try and do something on Brexit, just because that's been in the news so much, and I sort of have been initially avoiding it, but I feel compelled to talk about it. 
Um, I also have finally wrapped up my Libertarianism series, so we'll get a conclusion of that out soon. And then I have some more um, guests to announce coming up. I'm also thinking of doing another audience question and answer episode, because... I mean, I've got enough questions to fill one with, and I assume if I put out a call for questions, people would have more. And then, as always, please do give me suggestions on who you'd like to see on the show and what sorts of topics you'd like us to cover. That's it for this time. Thank you again to everyone who shares and everyone who's able to support us on Patreon. You're making the show possible. And thank you for listening. I hope you'll join us again next week. (laughs) 